Hello, this is your host, Jennifer Baker, and welcome to the Human Brain Project podcast, where we talk to the scientists and researchers that have dedicated their lives to solving the mysteries of the human brain. We discover the humans behind the science and find out how tomorrow's discoveries will be shaped. Professor Dr. Stephen Loris is a Belgian neurologist who, among other things, leads the Coma Science Group at the University of Liège. We'll be talking about the nature of consciousness as well as caring for the human brain and wellness. Thanks for joining us. Stephen, let's start with setting the scene for our audience. Tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment and what has you most excited day to day. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, what we're doing actually for the past 25 years is trying to reduce our ignorance, basically, uh, when it comes to understanding our thoughts and perceptions and emotions. That's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. It's understanding our own human mind, consciousness, and we do that through the use of uh, neuroimaging and, of course, the many partners also within the Human Brain Project and eBrains. Obviously, there's been imaging around for quite a long time. What's different about the work that you're doing now? What sort of tools are you using? So, of course, as a scientist, you depend on um, technological advances. So in our case, we try to zoom in on the very complex activity of thousands of billions of brain connections. So that's brain scans, functional MRI, EEG, measuring the electrical activity of the brain, modulating the brain's activity with techniques such as TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TDCS, which is direct current stimulation. So that's why you need a multidisciplinary team um, and many collaborations, making sure you work with top-notch engineers, physicists, mathematicians, biologists, and uh, neuroscientists, of course, to in the end, because I'm also a neurologist, a medical doctor, translate that knowledge and, and then just improve your care for patients who suffer from brain-related diseases. And is the work you do uh, with any specific target in mind, any particular pathologies, or is it just more about discovering the key to general mental well-being? So I um, direct and founded the GIGA Consciousness Research Unit, so that's really uh, trying to understand consciousness, and there's different labs there. The Coma Science Group is looking at pathological alterations of consciousness, such as coma and related states. Then there's a lab uh, looking at anesthesia and the effect of drugs, including psychedelics. Uh, and then the third one is what we call physiological modifications, that's sleep, dreaming, but also hypnosis, meditation. So it's really trying to um, understand mental activity in, in these different conditions. And of course, then through the university hospital, make patients benefit from that. But I would say our biggest activity regards the damaged brain after traumatic injuries or bleeding or lack of oxygen, stroke from coma as set and, and what we called 
vegetative state we now call these patients uh, in an unresponsive wakefulness or minimally consciousness or locked-in syndromes all the way to to concussion. So it's quite a, a broad area where the team is currently working on. Well, I'm sure many people will be interested to hear about those sorts of breakthroughs when it comes to practical applications and tackling pathologies. Is there anything you can tell us about in that area of what have been big successes in the study that you've been working on? I think with the team, we contributed to identify the brain networks critical for what we call external or sensory awareness. It's what you hear right now coming into your senses. And then uh, the other network uh, we identified is the so-called internal awareness or self-awareness network, uh, critical for the little voice in your head, permitting you to do mental imagery, anticipate the future, learn from your own autobiographic past. So those two combined with the emotional network uh, is, of course, very useful when it comes to trying to uh, answer the question, is this patient after coma Um, still having any thoughts or perceptions or emotions. Um, And and then we also try to understand how can the damage in these networks heal what we call neuroplasticity. Um, So the brain is permanently changing itself. And so um, how does it adapt to um, traumatic and other injuries, but also more and more with the team, we focus on what we all can do to um, take care of our mental well-being uh, through techniques like meditation, dealing with with your focus, stress. I think it was very clear with COVID that these are very important challenges uh, for us within the HBP network as scientists, but also for the clinicians and actually for, for all European citizens. So, so how do we take better care of our emotional needs? And, and again, neurotechnologies can help there. Well, I know one of the things that the Human Brain Project is, is very good at is setting out an ethical framework, if you like. And when you talk about things like self-consciousness and what is consciousness, I presume those that they become quite intertangled. What's your view? It's, uh, of course, challenging because the, the technologies and, and the knowledge generated can, that's the aim, be used to, to do good for patients and, and improve quality of life. But we work with state-of-the-art techniques such as brain-computer interfaces, and you could imagine that that would be used in other contexts. So it's important we, we reflect, and together with ethicists and other partners, we have the duty to um, prepare for the future. So we, we showed, for example, that we can now communicate with some of these patients who can't, after coma, speak or in any way express their thoughts or wishes. So uh, how do we apply that when it comes, for example, to rights, to rehab, end-of-life discussions? That's very complicated matter. So we have very interesting discussions with bioethicists, but also legal scholars, scientists, and, and then clinicians as myself. And, and that's important to prepare for the, for the future. Well, I think it's probably a good point now to talk more broadly about the Human Brain Project. You mentioned about discussing with others, and I think that one thing we're hearing through this series of podcasts is that one of the big bonuses about the HBP 
is the collaboration and interaction it allows. Is that something you've experienced? Absolutely. I think as scientists, it's critical that we can share our findings and that we can benefit from the specific areas of expertise. The problem when it comes to understanding the human mind is so massive that you will need to bring all those different people together. And that's why I think it was great to see how HBP helped us and how now through eBrains, we, we have their platform that permits to share neuroimaging data all the way from animals to humans because communication is key, not just for how your brain functions. And I mentioned these thousands of billions of brain connections, uh, but also how we as a scientific community can better work together. So, so that is wonderful to see that happen and to bring the best minds from all over Europe together and work for a common aim. And how close are we to truly understanding how the brain works, to put it in simple terms, or to understanding truly what consciousness is? Of course, we've seen a lot of incredible studies and results the past decade. And on the other hand, I wouldn't be too arrogant. And, and it's, it's so complex and challenging that we do not have a theory that explains consciousness. That would be very arrogant to um, pretend we can explain how something material like brain can somehow produce something immaterial, purely subjective, personal, which are our thoughts, perceptions, emotions. So that's how science works. We ignore what we do not know. I can't answer the question, well, since the beginning of HBP, or uh, have we participated and solved 50% of, of the problem or 5% or 0.005%. That's wonderful in a sense that so much is, is yet to be done. And I'm, I'm convinced that we'll take a couple of Nobel Prizes uh, before, if ever, we'll be able to, to solve the puzzle of, of human consciousness. Some philosophers would even say our mind is too, too limited to solve its own mysteries. Well, that's, that's a rather bleak outlook if you want to find things out <laughs> uh, for a researcher. But let's move to the more personal aspect of your career. Tell me about how you've ended up doing this work. Was it always the plan or did you take uh, different detours along the way? As long as I can remember, I um, knew I wanted to be a medical doctor. And then turning to neurology was for me an obvious choice because it's the area where we know the least, uh, the understanding, as we said, of the human brain was fascinating to me, understanding my own mind. Then, of course, uh, after my PhD, having a permanent position as a researcher, I think is, is just the most wonderful job there is. And, and especially as a clinical scientist translate that to our work in the hospital with the team, um, has been has been wonderful, and I, I would definitely uh, recommend it to to young people uh, listening. We've seen it with the challenges now uh, with COVID, but also with uh, huge climate changes that we need to invest more, of course, in in science. And I can tell from experience that it's it's wonderful 
when you go uh, to bed in the evening and you you had a day where you with the team participated in contributing to um, pushing the boundaries of our human understanding in, in whatever field it is. And was there anything in your childhood, in your family or key figures in your background or mentors at university that gave you an impetus to really go further in your field? Studying medicine and, and working in the hospital, it was the, the patients and, and working at the emergency ward and, and intensive care and rehab, the frustration of, um, at the time, patients who were coined in a vegetative state, which is an horrible word. So after coma, they awake and open the eyes, but only show reflex movements. And so the knowledge of the day, these were um, the 90s, it was that none of these people feel anything. And then, of course, how can I be sure about it? How can I measure consciousness as another human being? So that lesson from patients led me to um, challenge that dogma. Are they really fully insensate? And so we, of course, then showed that some of them do have a functioning brain and mind, and, and we need to be very careful. But I think it's wonderful to combine your job as a clinician, working with patients, and then that permits you to ask important questions as a, as a scientist. So, so that for me was an important uh, lesson. Well, it's something that scares a lot of people. It's really quite terrifying, this, this idea of coma and, and not being able to express yourself. What is the one thing you wish the general public knew more about your area of work? Oh, currently, I think I want to share the important message. We talk about coma and the damaged brain and how careful we need to be and about neuroplasticity and, and, and trying to um, improve recovery and quality of life after brain uh, damage. More and more, it's clear and we focus with the team how each and every one of us can impact our own neuroplasticity outside of the context of, of traumatic damage. I see it in the team, working with students, working with patients, that in uh, society today, there's a number of challenges where in my consultation, I see a lot of people suffering from chronic stress and anxiety and sleeplessness. And I think there's the very positive news. I, I want everyone to know that you can impact brain health. So our life habits, and it's increasingly clear, have an impact on how our neurons function and in terms of their capacity to focus, to deal with stress, but also to um, cultivate qualities like empathy and compassion. So that would today be my most important message to the general public. And that's also, by the way, Jennifer, what I write and why I did write the book, No-Nonsense Meditation, to just explain what science currently knows when it comes to the power of, of mindfulness and meditation and how it can impact our mental well-being. Well, tell me a bit about what are the things we can do to improve our neuroplasticity. Obviously, you mentioned meditation. I know my parents swear by Sudoku. Is there, are these things that we read in, in popular websites and popular magazines part of the solution? I think we do know what, what is important. And as you said, it's the um, mental training uh, by solving puzzles or remaining active, listening to podcasts. Meditation is is 
just for me an exercise where you train your attention. But it's not the only one. It's also paying attention to the quality of your sleep, quality of your relationships, uh, work environment, what you eat, physical activities. So we spend a lot of time behind screens, social media. We are very often disturbed having these notifications or emails or SMS, uh, cell phones, whatever. So all of these impact our mental well-being. So uh, that's also as a physician what I now prescribe, basically. It's not just pills and then um, the drugs and, and the interventions, but it's also asking people about their life habits and, and motivate them to um, do something about it. So I just prescribe meditation and, and, and good sleep, and physical activities, uh, and that is what actually the science shows. So I agree we, we see a lot in you know, media and you have these coaches and it's sometimes difficult to know, well, what's evidence-based in all of this. But there's increasing evidence that, that truly we have the possibility, I would even say, the, the responsibility to take care of our brain health. And that is important because in Europe, one out of three will sooner or later be confronted with a brain-related disease, being it neurological or psychiatric in origin. Well, perhaps you can prescribe our podcast as part of a holistic diet for the brain. <laughs> um, let me ask you a little bit about looking to the future. What do you see as the next steps, um, not just with the Human Brain Project, where you know we've got eBrains coming up, but just in the, your field of study in general? I think a big challenge for me when it comes to um, understanding consciousness and translate that to the clinic is um, bridging from objective measures, uh, neurotechnologies, that's what we do with functional MRI and EEG and all these complicated measures. But it's, it's kind of useless, really, if, if we don't connect that, these objective data, to the subjective experience of the person laying in the machine, in the scan or whatever. So that's, that's what we call neurophenomenology. It's, it's really building a strong bridge between the most fundamental measures, all the way from the subcellular and neuronal to these large-scale neuronal activities, to what is this person actually feeling, experiencing, thinking, and how is that changing in the different conditions we just discussed? For example, hypnosis, meditation. It's difficult, but I do believe we maybe avoided it because it was so difficult. And the whole field of consciousness research when I started in the 90s was nearly considered taboo. And that is never good. When as a scientist, you auto-censor your own questions or area. So, so I'm, I'm very happy to see that that's now changing, that more and more teams throughout Europe and the world are zooming in on that really big question, understanding subjectivity by objective means. And what piece of advice would you have given your younger self as a young scientist or even the next generation of scientists coming along? When I was young, I was thinking differently and that's, that's very good. So I would, my piece of advice to the young people is just follow your passion. And of course, as a scientist, as a professional researcher or, or healthcare provider, you know 
you need to know your business, your stuff, knowledge. Uh, but that's not the only thing. I think it's important to follow your dreams. I always like to quote uh, Jacques Brel, you know, the Belgian singer, when he says, le talent, c'est d'avoir envie de faire quelque chose. Talent is just wanting to do something. And, and I think that's very important. And we should more focus, not just on CV and, and brilliant grades, but, but uh, how passionate young people can be about the subject and question the truths of today that I believe is, is very, very important, uh, especially in a field like, like consciousness where so much is to be done. Well, that's a good point for me to ask you the final question, which is what do you do for fun outside of the world of work? <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Well, um, you understood I was mentioning passion. So uh, I'm very, very happy uh, that the most beautiful job there is, I think, and, and passion about the scientific questions uh, that we're asking with the team in, in, in Liège. Uh, so I, I fall asleep with that. I wake up with it. And sometimes it takes <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of space. And so there's, I must say, with the work in the hospital and, and the university and the team uh, and five kids and a working partner, sometimes not a lot of time um, with, with the conferences now that we have again, luckily after, after mm -hmm. COVID. So I try to run, I try to um, go on holiday and, and, and when I'm in meetings, take the family with me. Uh, but Apart from writing the popular books, unfortunately, currently, there's limited time for other things. But, but again, um, it's like, I think, uh, an artist is living his passion. Well, I think it's really interesting. It's something I've asked all the interviewees on this series of podcasts, and I thought I might get very similar answers. And there's some overlap, but it's interesting to hear how differently people unwind. Thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for talking to us today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Human Brain Project podcast. If so, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and most importantly, share with a friend. To learn more about the Human Brain Project, please visit humanbrainproject.eu and be sure to check out other episodes in this series packed with fascinating insight into how our minds work. Thanks for listening.